In any major city, a museum is a wonderful place, a pantheon of learning and discovery. In any major motion picture, a museum is a cesspool of violence and horrors come to life, a mecca of death and dismemberment. Maybe think twice when that field trip permission slip comes home. Luckily, you don't have to think twice about the relic because it's not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, I have waxed philosophic on multiple episodes about my love for Clive Cussler's writing and how I actually enjoy the Sahara movie, even though Clive Cussler himself didn't. Now we're going to get into another couple of authors whose books that I have read and really enjoyed and the movie that is based off them. That's because we are talking about 1997's The Relic. And here to join for the first time on It's Not That Bad, it's Peter from the Movie Duel Podcast. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? I am great. I'm not going to lie. When I saw the list of movies that you were pitching, <laughs> there may have been a squeal when I saw the relic in here, uh, just because I was so stoked for it. Uh, but tell me, what is it about this film that made you want to pitch it? It, it, it sort of came, fell into my lap um, at a certain age. So I was around about uh, 14 in 1997. Um, and this... <laughs> In the UK, we just started to get something called Sky Box Office, which was where you were able to rent films from, from you know, direct through your sort of Sky Box. Um, so this this was just like heaven to me. You know, we didn't have to rely on my parents for a visit to the video shop or anything like that. It was, we could just rent films from home and it was great and you could record them onto VHS. So this, along with films like Anaconda and Scream, all sort of came into my lap at the same time and... This was just it for me. I'm a lover of monster movies. And yeah, this was just just heaven to me. <laughs> there was something about that, you know, mid to late 90s mo- you know, monster horror movie genre that, you know, kind of was all the rage at that time. And this one, I do believe, stood out ab- amongst many of them. But before we go down this road, before we go down Relic Road, it is time to take this movie adaptation of a Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child book and trailerize it. In 1995, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child introduced the world to Agent Aloysius Pendergast in the hit novel Relic. In 1997, one movie will take that source material, add a the to the title, and subtract almost everything else in the relic. Tom Sizemore is Lieutenant Vincent D'Agosta, a cop who had to keep reminding people what his name is because he's not Agent Pendergast. He'll bark about losing his dog and chastise anyone who isn't superstitious as he tries to solve a murder at a museum with a superstition exhibit. There, he'll meet Dr. Margot Green, A woman smart enough to figure everything out, but not smart enough to get out of the murder museum and run far away. Together, they'll dive headfirst into a case filled with headless corpses in a movie that would have been good on its own 
with it decapitating the soul of the source material. It's the Relic, rated R, for Read the Damn Book. I do have to point out, this movie is part of, and actually is the first, Agent Aloysius Pendergast novel, of which there's about 20 of them, and Douglas Preston and Lickenchild are still writing Pendergast books to this day. Pendergast ain't in this movie. He's in the book. He ain't in this movie. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about that one. But let's get into who is in this film. The movie stars Penelope Ann Miller, Tom Sizemore, Linda Hunt, James Whitmore, Clayton Rohner, Chi Moi Lu, and I apologize if I messed up that name. I got Aloysius right. Uh, you, you get one right name per episode. And Louis Van Bergen. However, there is an almost starring in this one. As Vincent D'Agosta, apparently the first choice for this role, was Harrison Ford. And I don't hate yes. that idea. Uh, I don't know. I think Ford's a little bit too crotchety. I think there's a bit more um, uh, sort of niceness to the, the Costa character. And I think he would have been a bit too grumpy. The thing is, I can see why they were considering Harrison Ford, because in the book, Pendergast is the one who's all suave from the FBI. And right. D'Agosta is a little bit on the grumpier side, so I can see why they would pick Harrison Ford. Okay. But also, as Dr. Frock, as played by James Whitmore, he's the scientist in the wheelchair. Under mm. consideration were Alec Baldwin, Al Pacino... Christopher Lloyd and Robert De Niro. And I'm looking at that list. <laughs> yeah. And and only one I could actually see, and it's Christopher Lloyd. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Pacino, De Niro, sure, maybe. Alec Baldwin, not in nineteen ninety-seven. No. Christopher Lloyd, yes, definitely. The film was directed by Peter Hyams, who previous to this made 2010, The Year We Made Contact, Running Scared, and The Presidio, so a, a group of decent films. But he also directed Stay Tuned, and I have to point out that we've already done an episode on Stay Tuned, so that tells you how, how well that movie went. However, the film actually did pretty good. There were zero Razzie nominations and zero Stinker's Bad Movie Award nominations. However... At the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, Tom Sizemore was nominated for Favorite Actor in a Horror Film. He lost to David Arquette in Scream 2. Mm, At the Saturn Awards, yeah, I can't really <laughs> see anyone losing to David Arquette in anything. No. <laughs> not even in a WCW ring. But, you know. <laughs> At the Saturn Awards. Indeed. You have Penelope Ann Miller, who was nominated for Best Actress. She lost to Nev Campbell in Scream. And the film was nominated for Best Horror Film. It lost to Scream. And at the Fantasporto Awards, it was nominated for Best Film. It lost to Bound. And hmm. Bound is a great movie. Don't get me wrong. I just don't see it in the same category as The Relic. No, definitely not. I mean, as much as 14-year-old me would have loved Bound, probably... Um, at that time i hadn't seen it by then um but the relic is an infinitely better film than bound definitely 
I'd be I'd be curious. You know, <laughs> if you take a look at because there are some way out there films in that category. Of course, it's the Fantasporto Awards, so you know you're probably talking about a very diverse range of films that are qualifying. But mm. Bound is great for what it is. Relic is great for what it is, but they're two different things. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I suppose you can put that to, to most um, award ceremonies and categories within within those ceremonies, can't you? Whether it's the Oscars and Best Picture, it's... I don't know. Anyway, you know I'm, I'm all for genre awards. Like, yes, put the horror films together. Yes, put the sci-fi films together. Because, let's be honest, a sci-fi film is not going to, you know, beat out a period piece depending on who's voting or vice versa let mm. them let them sit in the genre yeah that's true one place this movie didn't fare as well was at the box office the film had a budget of 40 million dollars and only made 33.9 million worldwide it did debut at number one on the january 10th 1997 weekend january releases where movies go to die but also <laughs> debuting that week were first strike which debuted at number six with 5.7 million and turbulence which debuted at number eight with 4.46 million so it did fairly well like the number two film was a vita with about 8.3 but that's in its third week so i mean yeah the relic is much better than a vita personal opinion Yes, yeah. I'm not a big fan of musicals, so I would definitely, definitely put the relic above Evita, um, especially uh, musicals starring Madonna. I'm I'm getting the feeling, just in the way you said that, that I'm, you're probably going to be regretting the one day where you have to do a movie duel podcast on best or worst musicals, aren't you? Uh, well, there are a few. You know, my... My personal sort of um, preferences towards uh, horror and and probably sci-fi um, and adventure. Um, so you know something like Rocky Horror would definitely you know fall into that uh, into that category. So I've always got something in the back pocket for most subjects. I would imagine. Oh, trust me, if it comes to <laughs> that genre of musical. Have I got a film for you? But we'll get to that eventually here. Uh, the critics, however, over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 55, and over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 34. And the tomatometer is actually higher at 37%. So to you, are you surprised that the, like normally you sit there and say, okay, the movie qualifies, so it's got to be somewhere in that range. But are you surprised the audience score is lower than the tomatometer? I was, yeah, definitely. When I looked this up and, you know, obviously the what the, the qualifying um, parameters were for um, films that sort of qualify for this podcast, it was, it was a real shock um, because I know quite a few people who, who really enjoy this film. I think... You know, for me, it's. It, I think it's maybe. It's maybe a little bit too intelligent for a, a monster movie, I suppose. That, that, that sort of style um, that was was there in the mid nineties. It was maybe a little bit too um, highbrow of a concept, I suppose, um, for the for the audiences who maybe just wanted to switch off a little bit. Which I don't. I think you still can with this film, but. It was, yeah, it was a massive shock, definitely. I mean, there's probably some attribution to the idea that 
the movie is based on the first Agent Pendergast book, and Agent Pendergast is nowhere in this film. Uh, so I can I can see people going in waiting to see the character that they've read, and it's like, nope, nope, I don't think so. <laughs> you don't get him. That would be like, and I'm going to bring this up again, if you had Clive Cussler's book Sahara turn into the film with no Dirk Pitt. That his entire book series is pretty much based on Dirk Pitt. You got to have Dirk Pitt in there. Same thing here. Yeah. You kind of have to have Agent Pendergast. I suppose it's like making Kiss the Girls without Alex Cross as well, I suppose. Right? Yeah. But <laughs> let's get into the breakdown here. Uh, I'm going to start with you here with Penelope Ann Miller, who played Dr. Margot Green. How was she for you? I thought she was really good in this. I mean, she's not really... I can't think of anything, and and looking at my research, there wasn't a hell of a lot of films that she's been the leading lady and she's been, um, you know, a relatively sort of supporting actress up until this point from 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 the films that I've seen anyway. Um but I think she pulls it off really well. You know, she she portrays this sort of kept down evolutionary biologist who's struggling to to get her grant. But at the same time, she's she's realistic. She's not a complete damsel in distress or anything like that. She can stand her ground, you know, up against uh, this this character of Greg Lee that that's trying to sort of steal her grant. Um, but for me, I think she she holds it pretty well. You know, you believe that she's this this biologist and she's. Uh, she knows what she's talking about and she's she's not sort of taking any when it comes to um you know trying to uh get ahead and and she wants to just sort of crack on even though there's been this murder and this body found at the museum she just wants to get on and she just wants to 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 get on with the work and keep her team going and and get this grant and yeah you know she's i think she's totally believable in this role i mean I- a, she took the role because she had never done horror to this point mm-hmm. in her career, uh, which is kind of cool. I mean, you take a look at some of the movies, um, you know, Awakenings, Kindergarten Cop, which she was great in, uh, The Shadow, which no one was great in. So, you know, she was also in Big Top Pee-wee, which, come on, if you're going to be in a Pee-wee Herman movie and it's not Pee-wee's Big Adventure, you got you got to do the next best thing here. But I, I think in this case, she nailed it. Now, little, <laughs> when I was reading the book or when actually when I read any book I don't know if you're the same way I sit there and I try to mentally cast the role so as I'm reading it I'm picturing actors in that role when I was reading the book and and no bullshit here on this one I'm reading this I'm like you know who'd be really great in this Penelope Ann Miller she would kill this role <laughs> and then the movie comes out and it's Penelope Ann Miller and I basically like you know stood up and said I was right Hollywood hire me. I will cast your films. They didn't hire me. But still, I was right on Penelope Ann Miller. The thing that I really liked about this, you nailed it, right? She's she's no nonsense. She she's nose down, like very smart. But it's not cliched in a way that she's bitchy to everybody else. She cares mm-hmm. about her team. She cares about the museum. She's, you know, like she cares about the cop that she talked to. You know, you know, or said hi to every day until he goes into the bathroom, smokes a joint, and gets killed. Like, you know, she's a compassionate person who's passionate about her science. She, you know, 
smart people don't have to be bitches. You know, she really killed this role. I'm really, really happy that they did put her in and that Hollywood somehow listened to me, even though they never asked me. I mean, I I would, uh, yeah, I think she's, she's a very capable actress and I think everything I've seen her in, she's always performed really well in it. And I would even go to bat and say that uh, you need to cover the shadow on this podcast as well. Oh, are are you calling your shot? Are we going down that road? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Done and and done. (laughs) Now we get to Tom Sizemore who played uh, Lieutenant Vincent D'Agosta. I'm just going to put this out there right now since I was reading the book, you know, know, before this movie came out, my envisionment of D'Agosta was John Malkovich. Tom Sizemore is not John Malkovich, but how was Tom Sizemore as D'Agosta? Again, I think in a similar way to Penelope Ann Miller, you know, he's not he's not somebody that you would immediately go to and think of a leading man. And I don't think he's necessarily had much of a chance of that. He's always played these sort of minor roles, and I think he did for the rest of his career. You know, obviously he, he suffered with a lot of demons down the line um, before his untimely passing last year. Or was it this year? Very, you know, very recently. Um but he's just got such a, a nuance to the character. You know, he's not just, he's a bit of a wise ass, but he's not, unless people are a wise ass to him, you know, he gives as good as he gets. And you've got this little sort of, these little traits to his character, his super, you know, the, the thoughts about superstition and how that sort of ties in with the exhibition at the museum. Um, and then you've got this sort of minor sort of subplot that he's, he's, he's going through a divorce and he's lost his, his dog, which is, you know, the, it seems to be the, the sort of love of his life and this affinity for dogs, which carries on through the rest of the film, which he handles really well as an actor. And I think Tom Sizemore is a fascinatingly cap- capable actor. Um, and I don't think he's ever had the opportunity to to really show that in a in a leading role other than this film that again that sort of comes to mind but and again whether that's been held back by his demons i don't know but i just think again like penelope Ann miller he's very believable in this role and he just you just like him as a character which is the ultimate thing that you want from a leading man especially in this kind of film and yeah, I just think he's, I just think he's really strong in this film. The interesting thing is that they cast someone who wasn't really, you know, top billing lead man stature at that point. You know, that would have been a Harrison Ford casting for sure. Um, but I think the interesting thing about casting, for lack of a better term, character actors, ensemble actors you know actors who you put them in the role and you know that role is going to be solid but you're not leaning on their name to sell the tickets you know yeah. really you know the the Cathoga is the is the you know the selling point the horror is the selling point and i think the connection to the book is a selling point as well mm-hmm. you know i i think that if you put someone like a harrison ford in there knowing that the changes that they made to make Dr. Green, you know, the 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 hero really in this as opposed to Dagosta. You know, it's yeah. not that cliche cop saves the day thing. Dr. Green does it, which is actually mm-hmm. different than the book. It's Pendergast who actually kills the monster in the book. And here and this is this is where 
fans of the book are probably going to sit there and go, yeah, hashtag not my DaGosta. Uh, <laughs> because in the movie, he's very superstitious. And it's like, he's got his lucky bullet. And he's constantly saying, don't don't step over the dead body. And in the book, DaGosta is like, yeah, take your superstitions and shove them up your ass. That's basically, <laughs> it's the exact opposite, right? They took Pendergast and Degasa from the book and basically mashed them into the one character, which I agree with in a sense, because, you know, if you've got a New York cop and an FBI agent both trying to solve this case, it's going to come like head to head. And it's going to take away from the fact that they set up Penelope and Miller as a very good female protagonist. And this is where this movie shines. And probably is ahead of its time. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, like you say, you know, he doesn't sort of save the day. He's there to sort of get things moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, the the main sort of plot points and the... And the you know getting on top of things it's not really down to him it's it's down to the to the Margot Green character you know she she figures everything out she ultimately uh, you know it destroys the monster in this in this in this very epic although kind of dodgy CGI um, finale but yeah you know he's they they both work they will their roles really well and they keep the story moving along but ultimately it's 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 down to Margot. and that's the thing like yes we can sit here and poke at the cgi of everything <laughs> and then remind ourselves that it's 1997 and it's only a 40 million dollar budget so you know put that aside you know in the book it's pendergast you know you know snipes the creature right between the eye based on dr green's understanding of the physiology of the creature here it's the perfect way for a scientist to destroy a creature by using chemical reactions mm-hmm. you know as her as her choice like very very like despite the fact that it's different from the book it's very smart yeah Let's move on to Linda Hunt, who played Dr. Anne Cuthbert, kind of like the, the museum curator and feels like the, 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 the inspiration for Edna Mode from The Incredibles here. How was she for you? <laughs> um, she, again, you know, she, she's a very dependable actor, I think, Linda Hunt, you know, whether it's, it's something like this or uh, Kindergarten Cup, which, you know, she's obviously familiar with uh, Penelope Ann Miller from that film. Um, she's, you know, she's... She adds a bit of character, you know. She's she's she not just she doesn't just have an interesting look. I think again, you know, it comes down to that believability. You know, in a film that's about at the end of the day, it's about a, a giant monster that's going through a museum killing people. She adds that believability to 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 her character that she you know she's concerned about um, the the future of the museum and this this obviously a very important um, exhibit for them to keep things going and she's concerned about her staff and everything else and you know she's she, she's just a, a a solid character for this film definitely. I just want to put an image in your head since we're <laughs> since given the three actors that we have talked about here so far. Okay, I just want to put an image in your head and you the next time you watch the relic you will never get this image out of your head. So bear with me here. Tom Sizemore is Mr. Incredible. Penelope Ann Miller is Elastigirl. 
and Linda Hunt is Edna Mode. You literally have a live action Incredibles in the relic. Because he kind of looks like him. Yeah, definitely. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now go back and watch it. And all you need is Samuel L. Jackson going, where's my super suit? I can't can't believe we went Pixar with the relic, but that's okay. Um, The thing with Linda Hunt, uh, aside from being, you know, uh, not necessarily a stern, but definitely a dedicated museum curator, is that, you know, again, they're not playing these characters for bitchy one note characters. You know, she's she's firm in trying to get the museum and this exhibit going so they can get some funding. But she also fosters healthy competition as seen by like, you know, yeah, sure, Dr. Greg is, is applying for this. You're applying for it too. I want to see you get it, but I, I'm not stopping him. Like, it's a very interesting dynamic in how it's, it's almost like controlled chaos that she likes to see in her staff. And, you know, you're really not quite sure if she's, you know, a good character or a bad character, but it makes her a deep character. And I think Linda Hunt played that perfectly in this. Mm. Well, that's it. There's there's even a moment in it where she's, you know, she's at the start of the exhibit. She's um, concerned or she's starting to look concerned because Margot's not there. And she doesn't know where she is, and she's looking at a watch, and then she spots the um, the Blaisdells that we've heard mention of these this rich couple that obviously give the grants and everything else, and then she's distracted by that and completely forgets about Margot. So yeah, she's you know she's not a one dimensional character, and she's not um, just looking out for 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 Margot. She's 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 concerned, you know. She's she's thinking about the the money and the money people that are coming to this uh, this gala opening as well. Exactly. It's there are some one dimensional characters here and we'll get to them in a little bit. But, you know, (laughs) Linda Hunt is definitely not one of them. I I love when you have, you know, a solid character that solidifies the relationship with with the staff and with the situation without having to overplay their hand. A a perfect Mm -hmm. choice. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But one-dimensional characters here. Chi Moi Lo as Dr. Greg Lee. (laughs) I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just going to ask, did you cheer when he bought it? Yes, pretty much. I think he serves his purpose completely. He's believable as as this sort of arsehole character who um, will do absolutely everything and anything to uh, to get what he wants and, and not, you know, it's well established in the film that he's already got his grant, he's got enough money to keep himself going, but he doesn't mind swiping another grant from underneath Margot to uh, to better himself and, and put her team out of work. So, yeah, you know, and he, 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 just, he just doesn't care about other people <laughs> at all. So, yeah, I cheered, absolutely. Shamely, shamelessly, annoyingly, <laughs> super eager and super ambitious um, yeah. and breaks one of the cardinal rules of horror movies. If you're dickish to the final girl, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, there, there, Absolutely. There are rules. I mean, you look at the security cop, the, the, the first one to really die in the museum. He went, smoke drugs, you die. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I'm sure if anyone had sex in the, in the, the museum, they would have died. Right? <laughs> you know, you have someone being mean to the final girl, he going to die. Right? That, yeah. Those are the ho- horror movie rules. Um, Robert Englund actually does a great dissertation on them. Uh, if you have the DVD of Freddy versus Jason, just just listen to the director's commentary. Trust mm-hmm. me, Robert Englund is having the time of his life on the director's commentary on that one. Um, yeah, it's one of those things where it's almost like they're painting, you know, the the annoying character with a very broad brushstroke. Right. Like mm-hmm. this is very much like you you don't like him right away. You don't like him throughout the movie. There is zero redemption for him whatsoever. And yeah. you're happy when the Kathoga gets him. But to the same token as well, Chim Wai Lo probably looked at the script and said, yeah, he's going to die and you're going to be happy when he's gone. So I'm going to play that to the to its fullest hilt. Which means yeah. he understood the assignment. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it's it, yeah. If you can get people, it's it's like I'm a, a big fan of professional wrestling, it, and it's the same, the same, the same thing. In that is that you know the bad guys have to make you hate them. Um, the same, you know, the same in, uh, applies to this kind of character. You know, they're the they're meant to be there to be hated, and actors have to make you hate them. The same with Joff. Uh, um, oh God, what's his name? Um, uh, the character of Joffrey in, in Game of Thrones. Mm, yeah. Everybody absolutely hated him. Or or the character of uh, um, uh, uh, oh God, Ramsay Bolton as well. You know, they're there to be absolutely hated and for you to relish in their demise and 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 not really you know have too much of a moral standpoint about the fact that they they are meeting their demise and for me the, this character the, the Gregory character does completely um achieve that definitely oh yeah i mean i love the brought up the wrestling thing like heel pops are a, are a real thing right if you're a yeah. heel and you get the crowd booing you the minute you walk into the ring you have done your job and and the best wrestlers know you know when you're the heel <laughs> if you can do that you're 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 main carding guaranteed i i think chi Lo um really did a good job in making us dislike this character oh he's the you know if, if we're going to go down the 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 lane of 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 professional wrestling comparisons he's the maze of this film most definitely oh god (laughs) 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 you know what i'm 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 gonna take it back a few years though i don't i don't know if i'd say the miz but i think i would definitely say the honky-tonk man yeah, yeah, that's a good show. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like definitely, and, and I'm I'm talking about Doctor Greg Lee. I'm not talking about Chimoy Low here, but like <laughs> annoying. And the minute he gets his comeuppance, you're like, "Yep, absolutely." Yeah. That's that moment. <laughs> James Whitmore is Doctor Albert Frock, and we saw the list, or we we went through the list of of uh, potentials that could have been him. I'm really glad it was James Whitmore. Whitmore, but what yeah. do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, James Whitmore. To anybody who watches, who watched a lot of films in the nineties or grew up through the nineties and watched a lot of cinema, he's, you know, he stands out as as Brooks in in Shawshank Redemption. So he's almost like this, this sort of warm blanket of 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 just this homely character, even though he maybe did despicable things to put him in prison. Um, you know, we we never learned that in that film. But he, you know, he's very he's he's just such a homely character in that film. Um, and and he sort of carries that on here, but with this sort of cool grandpa kind of character. You know, he's he's he's, he's he has these sort of familiar nods to uh, to the Margot Green character. You know, he's winking and he's 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 not there. He's all about the science. He's not about the money. He's not fussed about um, the end game of those sort of things. He's he's. He's he's looking out for Margot, and he's just he's like a sort of a kid with a Lego set. You know, he's just fascinated by everything, and uh, you know he's 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 a key part to the 
to the story, you know, this this whole theory that runs through the film, this Callisto effect is his and or is something that he buys into. So he's an important part of the, the story development. And he's also a part of the heart of the film because he becomes, you know, a major sort of saf- sacrificial lamb in the film as well. I'm again. I mentioned that I'm I'm happy it's him. I think if you put someone in the chair like you know De Niro or Pacino or Christopher Lloyd, like it becomes a bigger role merely based on the presence of an actor of that stature, especially in 1997. Here, he's capable to blend into the background when need to, act as Doctor Green's mentor and mm-hmm. support network, and you know yes his his theory is kind of like an expositional dump at that point as he's describing the theory which is fine it's not overblown it's not one of those hey let's go to the library and look up all this stuff on this one thing just we understand what the hell's going on it's kind of sprinkled throughout and smartly so and this is one of those films where you go back and you you watch it after you've watched it the first time and you see little bits in the movie that kind of like at first you weren't you know it was just a scene but then when you go back and watch it it kind of like oh this is where they were telegraphing things so when dr frock is in the cage hiding from the kathoga the kathoga finds him and stares at him first before Mm -hmm. killing him um by the way spoilers like a mofo okay It, we, we're over 90 episodes into this podcast like it might, it might as well just be on the artwork at this point if you've listened this long you've given up all hope of of avoiding spoilers sorry not sorry <laughs> but it's one of those things where a his death is almost uh it's bittersweet right because in that moment he realizes he's at an end but it comes with the realization that his theory was right So it's one of those, his life's work both came to fruition and proved to be his downfall at the same time. And there's just, there was just something so, so sweet about that death. And I'm glad they didn't play it for the violence of the other deaths that you saw. You don't need to see that. Just cut away. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, when they stumble upon his body again, don't show the body, just show the reaction. I'm going to give, you know, Peter Himes full respect there is some smart directing going on here smart casting mm-hmm. but it's it's the lingering look from the kathoga where you could almost once you realize you know yeah. that there that there's probably some realization in it then it's like yeah oh it makes to- so much sense definitely i mean it's it's it, it you know it, it you, you don't really find in this kind of movie this sort of out and out sort of monster movie that the you'll find many scenes that you that sort of tug at your your heartstrings a little bit, but but it does in this because you built you've built that character up really well. You've got a very capable actor in in James Whitmore, um, and he's got the chemistry with the rest of the cast as well. So it's it does become a, a moment where you're like no, but you know ultimately it's there to serve purpose for the rest of the film, and and it, and it does that absolutely. One of the things I need to bring up before we get on to some of the other actors here, and there's not that many left, but um, when the Kathoga goes face to face with with Margot at the end, and again holds the stare, yeah, you know, we we recognize now 
who the Kathoga is. And, you know, the, the, it's the stare down kind of thing. And then it licks her. <laughs> this is where I have to sit there and say, when at any point have we established that, and again, if you haven't watched it, take the earphones out, <laughs> that John Whitney had any sort of feelings towards Margot Green. Like, did I miss something there? No, absolutely not. I don't think that's that's sort of established through the story at all, but uh, I think that probably comes from the fact that Stan Winston could do a really convincing, icky-looking tongue that could lick um, an actress, basically. Okay, I, <laughs> I, I just needed to double-check because I'm like, you know, now that you know that 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 that's Whitmore, it's like, did I miss some 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 info dump there where, you know, she was happy that he's not back because he was lecherous or whatever? No, no, I, I didn't miss a thing. I don't know. Maybe it's in a longer cut. I don't know. Uh, but but since we're talking about John Whitney, as played by Lewis Van Bergen, um, how, obviously we're really only talking about him in the beginning of the film, kind of like the you know the the tease of the film. Um, I have thoughts, but I want to hear yours on this one. Uh, I think uh, for what it is for, you know, this, this sort of prologue to the film, it's, it's, it's enough. I mean, you know, he he has, doesn't have to do anything other than really act sort of spaced out and like he's tripping. Um, and, look a bit sort of disgruntled at the quayside um uh where the where the ship's taken his uh his sort of uh his sort of cocaine leaves i suppose is is the best way to put it um you know he's he's, he's not got a lot there i think he could have there's probably pros for it to be a little bit more sort of fleshed out and, and maybe a bit more of a competent actor he's not an actor i'm familiar with certainly um, and I think it could probably have meant a little bit more, but I think that's, you don't have any development other than that. If you had development more, you know, you, you get a, a bit of an inkling that the, this creature is developing, um, to a certain point and the evolution of this creature, um, you know, obviously you take in, in, in the fact that he's got to get through a, a, a bathroom door to get the first victim at the at the museum, so you wouldn't necessarily think that it's as big as it becomes in the next few days. Um, so you could have maybe had if you'd had that development of this creature evolving from the John Whitney character, then you wouldn't necessarily um, have the story that we have, and you wouldn't have the suspense that we have. Um, so I think it's 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 a suitable. Um, performance for the for the actor that's in that role. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, in comparison to everyone else in this movie, he seems to be the one character that might be a little overacting. Like, you know, I I'm not going to say like Richard E. Grant and Hudson Hawk level overacting here, but maybe a more apt comparison. Um, and I'm going to drop my Doctor Who geekery here for a second. Um, Prior to the 50th anniversary special of Doctor Who that had not just David Tennant and Matt Smith, but also um, William Hurt as the War Doctor. Sorry, John Hurt um, as the War Doctor. Um, 
there was like a little interstitial, like a, a short that happened to show um, Paul McGann um, basically yes. regenerating into the War Doctor. The, um, the Night of the Doctor, I think it was called. Yeah. But the thing is, Paul McGann was so, so over the top. And, you know, like, I, 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 love, I love my Doctor Who. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I'm watching this and I'm just like, whoa, turn it down. You've got it set to 14. That's four more than 10. <laughs> See, I love it. I love that. Uh, I love Paul McGann as a doctor. I was, I'm bitterly disappointed that they haven't tried to to sort of shoehorn him in a little bit more since uh, since his tenure. Um, his, his very short tenure as Doctor Who was uh, uh, was what, God, nearly thirty years ago now. Nineteen ninety six, um, as I recall. They ninety six. Yeah, that one off special on Fox. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I like that. I I like that aspect of his of his character, and you know, he's Paul McGann's very good. Is uh, is very good at, at overacting? I think you know. He, I think um, if you look at the the assembly cut, I think it's called of Alien Three, uh, where his character is a little bit more fleshed out. The character of uh, Golic, um, it's just so much better than than what's in the original cut, uh, and I I like that. Just as you know, going off off topic of uh, <laughs> of the relic and talking about Doctor Who, but uh, yeah, um, Paul McGann, I, I I'd back for. I, I completely disagree. I think he's uh, he's a he was a brilliant Doctor Who, even though it was very short and sweet. That being said, I would I could see Paul McGann in this role, and I don't know, yeah. maybe it's the it's the Whovian in me. I, I might appreciate the role more <laughs> a little bit here. Two more smaller roles to get into here. The first one is Clinton Rohner, who played Detective Hollingsworth, who was DeGosta's partner. It's a smaller role, but how was that? Again, I think it's really good. Again, it's very realistic. I think he's got that chemistry with um, with Tom Sizemore. Uh, you, you get the feeling that they've worked together and they work well together. Uh, there's no sort of uh, combativeness to their relationship. They're just... They just re- work, re- you know, really well together, and he, you know, he steps up when he needs to. He becomes, you know, he's the, he's the, uh, the sort of leader of the subplot of these people getting out of the, uh, of the museum through the underground tunnels, and yeah, I think he's really suitable in this role. Again, he's not a, he's not an actor I'm overly familiar with. I couldn't see a lot that, um, that that I'd seen him in from his filmography. Um, but yeah, I think he's really suitable for the role. I will say this film does feel more like an ensemble as opposed to mm. a starring vehicle really for anyone. Uh, and the, the, the nice thing is everyone, well, almost everyone, but everyone in this film <laughs> is, is competently casted. Like all the way through, you, you've got smart directing, your jump scares make sense. Um, the Cathoga design when it's, you know, in, in real life is, looks great. Um, I, I will agree with you that the Cathoga on fire is, uh, a a great band name, but B it's, you know, <laughs> it leaves a little bit to be desired, but the, the, the thing I'm complaining about is CGI. Then we've got a decent film here. Lastly, I need to bring this character up here. Dr. Zwizik, the coroner, as played by Audrey oh, Lindley. Yes. Um, 
I have thoughts. <laughs> I want to hear this. <laughs> I think this is one of the most understated. Well, it's not understated because of her performance, but it's just a fantastic character. You know, you've got. Uh, I, I can't think of the the actress's name, but she's just got. She's just so extravagantly sort of sassy. This 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 coroner um and she's delighted in her work you know to, uh, there's one line that um it was it seven decapitations in a week and i hate somebody who who takes head and doesn't give it it's just a classic line and then you know he asked about um uh what what the the murder weapon made have been and she delights in telling him that it's it was something big you know she's she just loves what she's doing and she's got this this obviously familiar sort of relationship with the the Lieutenant D'Agosta and, and you can see it there in, in a very short scene, you get that, you know, you, you get that they've got this relationship and that she's this particular character and, and this sort of sassiness to her. It's just incredible for this short scene. I just, yeah, just a very, very minor character, but just performed brilliantly and you don't even see her face. I mean, A, this was her last film. She actually died um, later that, (laughs) in the same year that this movie was out. Um, So this was her her final performance. And at one point, she was actually married to James Whitmore, who was in this film. They just never were on set at the same time. Um, Every now and then, in a certain year, in a calendar year, you get two movies that have something completely and eerily similar to each other and you know because it takes so long to make a film that it's got to be completely by accident but what was it about 1997 that had funny definitely horny definitely thirsty coroners (laughs) dealing with something crazy because 1997 you had this with Audra Lindley you also had Men in Black, which had Linda Fiorentino as the quirky, funny, definitely thirsty, and a little bit freaky Mm -hmm. coroner there. (laughs) 1997 was weird, y'all. Definitely, yeah. But it was. It's so much fun. And the nice thing is, it's that breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a very tense horror movie. Mm-hmm. You need those moments of levity, you know, not in the middle of the half hour of trying to escape the creature, but, you know, in the build up to it, you need those moments. And I think Audrey Lindley killed this one here. Um, yeah. Overall, though, like in the pantheon of those 90s era horror monster based movies, how does this rank for you? Oh, I think it's up there. I think it's you know it's, it's around the same time, and I know it's a film that you've you've already covered on this podcast. You know things like Anaconda that that are nowhere near as intelligent as this film, and I think it's that's what separates it from everything else. Is it it, it it's got that intelligence? Um, you know, you look at those uh, critic reviews on on Rotten Tomatoes, and they're they're either that this film is brainless or that it's very intelligent, you know, maybe not so much uh, the latter, but I think there, there is that, there is that thing of 
it's maybe a little bit too intelligent for this kind of film. You know, people expecting a, a monster film, but not having to think about the science of it, even though the science is very, is very good and it's very believable. Um, it, it, it doesn't really sort of sit in the middle, I suppose, but it's, yeah, it, I think it's, it's, it's different to anything else that you saw in the nineties, you know, another, not necessarily a monster film, but things like the ghost and the darkness that were, um, another, a very good contender for this podcast. Um, you know, they, they were more grounded in nature, a bit like Anaconda, which was, um, you know, big monsters, uh, natural things. Uh, this was, this was sort of fantastical, but it was, it was grounded in science, grounded in nature, and 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 maybe not um, what people were expecting at that time, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think if you're going into this film, um, I'm just going to put this out there. Don't read the book. The, the book is, you know, you can see where the, the source material is coming from, but go into this film forgetting that the book exists. Because to me, this film would have done better if... It was not the relic, you know, if it was some other type of horror film that you could sit there and say, well, it's similar to that, but it is, it's still its own thing. Um, if you, if you never read a Pendergast novel, you're really, really going to love this book or this movie. Um, if you've watched the movie, you're still going to like the book. You're not, you know, it's not one or the other. Um, but yeah, I think the critics are way too hard on this one. And it's so much better than Anaconda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, Peter, it has come time. So let us know who is your MVP of the relic? (sighs) See, it's a tough one. Um, I, it's, it, I think it's Tom Sizemore for me. Um, he's just he's so likable as a character. Not to say that Penelope Ann Miller and Margot Green are, are not likable as a as a character. I think Tom Sizemore, he has he hits all those beats of of you know being quite comedic, uh, being really strong and being you know just driving the story forward. He's he's more the. Um, the, the the logical sort of anchor to the film, so he's he's there to to sort of take us along, um, not maybe being scientific and everything else, and and understanding things from from a base sort of standpoint. So I think, um, and for somebody who doesn't normally get the leading roles, I think he re- he really nails it in this film. He was under consideration for me, but maybe I'm 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 still raw because they didn't cast John Malkovich like I pictured it, but. And I was also considering Peter Hyams, the director, because this movie is, you know, it, it's very, very atmospherically well done. You know, it's not bright like a movie like Anaconda was. It, it really was. Like it, it felt very two-dimensional and set in stage. This felt dark and eerie and creepy and smartly directed. But I, I, I can't not give it to Penelope Ann Miller. This is the film that really took her her career for me and put a very bright star on it. 
I love everything she did in it. I, I loved how she played it smartly. And, you know, I, I wish that more movies would have looked at her and said, she is complete action leading star worthy. Just give her the opportunity. I thought Penelope Ann Miller was great in this. Peter, thank you so much for, for getting me to, to rewatch this film and, and to rethink about the books there. Uh, before we go, please let us know about the Movie Duel podcast, where we can find it and where we can hear it. Okay, so at the Movie Duel podcast, we, uh, we pick a subject that's based around movies. So that can be best, worst, uh, underrated, overrated, scariest, all sorts of different subjects um and we uh we pick a film uh based on that subject so between myself and one of my co-hosts so i have a a, a team of, uh, of of various different co-hosts uh my core four as i call them uh, and then we sort of pit those films against each other um so you can find us on facebook at um movie your podcast uh, and you can find us on Twitter at MovieJewelPod. And you can email us if you want to get in touch at MovieJewelPodcast at gmail.com. And I can safely say, having listened to a few of the episodes, uh, if you got a long commute, it is an absolutely great podcast to listen to. Peter, you are more than welcome back here anytime you wish. I'm going to go take a look at that list and go, all right, let's do this one here. And, you know, <laughs> as I'm editing this going, oh, yeah, there was that movie too. And that, yeah, no, you're coming back. Well, <laughs> I think I've I've added at least two more to this uh, to to that list uh, just during the 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 time of this conversation. So, yeah, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll get the residency started real soon there, Peter. Thank you so much, and to you, thank our, you. To you, our listeners, thank you so much. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is so bad that there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on any social media platform. I don't even know if I can call it Twitter anymore. Hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. And while you're there, check out our Coming Soon page where you can see some of the movies that we are planning for future episodes. Peter, thank you so much. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.